Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. What I thought we might do this afternoon, unless, unless you have any questions left over from this morning, um, I thought perhaps this afternoon we would focus a little more on the subject of my book and also the Merrill Peterson book, which basically talks about how these two prominent founding fathers have been interpreted or misinterpreted, uh, used by generations of American politicians to bolster their own specific policy arguments of their time. And um, if you'll, again, just give me a chance to sort of briefly summarize the thrust of my book, and I know most of you have read it, but uh, uh, perhaps this will just be helpful for all of us uh, in terms of bringing things together. Uh, after Hamilton's death, his, uh, his widow and a few of his close Federalist friends, particularly uh, Rufus King and Timothy Pickering of Massachusetts, uh, did the best they could to try to keep Hamilton's memory alive and also try to try to keep the Federalist Party alive. And I think in both cases, they pretty much failed. Uh, the Federalists are basically a non-entity by, by 1808, 18, certainly the War of 1812 finishes off the Federalist Party, uh, except for a few strongholds in, in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and, uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, to some extent. Uh, but as far as Hamilton's memory, his wife spends the next 10 to 20 years trying to find somebody who will write a memoir, uh, excuse me, a biography of her husband's life, and uh, with little success until finally one of her sons, uh, John Church Hamilton, agrees to take up the task. Uh, Hamilton's reputation probably dips to one of its lowest points, although there'd be a, be a real contest to, to, to sort of narrow the lowest possible point. That's, that's probably the New Deal. Uh, but one of its lowest points during the Jacksonian era. Uh, Andrew Jackson, as I had mentioned this morning, uh, had, perhaps I didn't mention this, I think I mentioned this yesterday, I'm sorry. Uh, Jackson welcomed Aaron Burr as a hero uh, after he had killed Hamilton when Burr was heading west, running from the authorities in, in uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, one of the places he stopped at was in Nashville, Tennessee, and also spent some time at the Hermitage at Jackson's home. And he was, uh, Burr, Burr was greeted with a 21-gun salute and hailed as this uh, champion of the common man who had slayed the evil Hamilton, who was the champion of the New York banks and so forth. So Jackson possessed a real animus towards, towards Hamilton and his warm welcome to Aaron Burr just weeks after he had killed Hamilton is, is indicative of that. During Jackson's uh, war with the, United, the Bank of the United States, uh, it was often, that, that battle was often compared with the contest between Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, Jackson and Van Buren representing the common man, uh, the Nicholas Biddle and the champions of the Bank of the United States, of course, seen as the descendants of, of Alexander Hamilton, and uh, it's it was en endless comparisons drawn between Jackson and Thomas Jefferson, and Biddle and the others, uh, and Alexander Hamilton. Van Buren, uh, Martin Van Buren was in some ways the strategic and the tactical mind behind the whole Jacksonian movement. 
He was a New Yorker, so he was very familiar with Hamilton. And in fact, he was very <coughs> close to one of Hamilton's sons, interestingly enough. But Hamilton considered, excuse me, Van Buren considered Hamilton to be a foreigner, to be one of these, uh, to be not one of us, the theme that I was mentioning this morning. And uh, even though he was somehow able to maintain a friendship with the young Hamilton, he uh, certainly had little regard for, for the father. James K. Polk fits into this as well. Polk uh, from Tennessee, uh, an adherent of the Jacksonian view of the presidency, and also Jackson's views on the bank and so forth, also had low regard for Alexander Hamilton. So this pre-Civil War period is not a particularly high point for Hamilton, and it was a good time to be a Jeffersonian and to uh, consider yourself a supporter of Andrew Jackson. Um, there's a real question as the, to the, the extent to which uh, Jefferson saw Andrew Jackson as somebody who, uh, uh, who, who was a descendant of his, in the sense that Jefferson dies in 1826, Jackson is a formidable presence in American life. There's conflicting evidence. There's some evidence to show that Jefferson had little regard for Jackson. There's other evidence that indicates that he did, uh, and that's typical Jefferson. You can find evidence on both sides of the equation. Uh, but there's no doubt that the Jacksonian movement is, is, direct, is a direct outgrowth of the, the Jeffersonian Democrats and their battles with Hamil Hamilton and the Federalists. During the Civil War, um, Hamilton experiences a resurgence, at least in the North. Interestingly, Abraham Lincoln, who in some ways pursued, in many ways, pursued Hamiltonian policies, uh, extolled the virtues of Thomas Jefferson. And I talk about this uh, in my book and try to explain that apparent contradiction. And I concluded that Lincoln uses Jefferson, in a sense, against the South and against the slaveholding interests. He uses the rhetoric of the Declaration, the principles of the Declaration, as a way to sort of point to Southern Democrats and say, look, you are betraying <coughs> the principles of your founding father who created the, who, who declared that all men are created equal. So I think it was a tactical political consideration on Lincoln's part. Um, his closest, one of his closest friends, William Herndon, his law partner, said that Lincoln despised Jefferson, <coughs> Jefferson's policy, disagreed uh, intensely. Jefferson. And I tend to believe Herndon. There's a tendency among historians to dismiss Herndon as a kind of gossip monger, although in recent years he's been rehabilitated to some extent. But I think Herndon understood that Lincoln was using Jefferson's rhetoric but had little regard for Jefferson's policies. Uh, there's only a couple of references in Lincoln's speeches where he explicitly referred to Hamilton. But one of the instances was citing Hamilton as somebody who was opposed to, to slavery. In the post-Civil uh, War era during the Gilded Age, this is when Hamilton is probably at his peak historically. Uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, Teddy Roosevelt, a whole series of Republican presidents, uh, Benjamin Harrison, James Garfield was a real, a very deep and well-read admirer of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, a lot of New England intellectuals, people at Harvard University at this time, 
uh, viewed Hamilton as the critical founding father, the father of, of the American Union and of American capitalism. So he's really at his, his peak at this point, and Jefferson is very much in eclipse. And for me, the symbol of that was that there was a statue of Thomas Jefferson on the grounds of the White House that was put there by President Polk in the late 1840s. And when Ulysses S. Grant became President of the United States, he ordered it removed. And it was sent back to the U.S. Capitol and put in the uh, statuary hall there. Uh, so that just in some ways symbolized it, at least for Northerners and for people who had been on the Union side of the, the Civil War, uh, Hamilton was their hero. Jefferson was somewhat in uh, disgrace. Now, things begin to change during the Progressive Era, late 1890s and into the 20th century. Uh, a number of uh, uh, so-called progressives questioned the what they saw as a sort of conservative nature of the American Constitution and the fact that it seemed to as interpreted by the Supreme Court, prevent any kind of social legislation from moving through that would temper the excesses of capitalism. And Hamilton, seen as the father of American capitalism, but also as a kind of supreme constitutionalist and an advocate of judicial review, uh, you know, Hamilton all of a sudden begins to be seen somewhat differently by these Harvard intellectuals who 10 or 20 years earlier saw him as the champion of union and considered him a positive character. So you slowly, and you see this perhaps most uh, <coughs> clearly in the work and the writings of Woodrow Wilson. As a younger man and as a student in college, Wilson revered Alexander Hamilton. Later on, as he becomes active in democratic politics, he begins to question Hamilton's Americanism, literally. Uh, and in particular has trouble with what he sees as a real inegalitarian streak in Hamilton, a sort of disregard for uh, the common folk. And so by the time Wilson is running for president as a Democrat in 1912, uh, he has pretty much silenced his praise for Hamilton and speaks glowingly of Thomas Jefferson. Um, and I have, I, if, if you've read that chapter, you'll see that there are some great, great quotes from Wilson, again, sort of dismissing Hamilton as somehow un-American. There's a very influential uh, book that appears at this time by a man named Herbert Crowley called The Promise of American Life, in which he puts forward a, an agenda for the, new for the nation in the new century and advocates using Hamiltonian means to... to uh, Sure, uh, Jeffersonian ends. In other words, using an activist federal government to help move the country in the direction of a more social welfare state that will sort of uh, close the gaps, the glaring inequalities that exist between rich or poor. And this this particular book, I think, had great influence on people like Wilson and like future President Franklin Roosevelt and all of the sort of democratic intelligentsia that came in with the New Deal. Uh, they admired Hamilton's advocacy of an energetic government, but they were determined to pursue Jeffersonian ends to try to, try to close the gaps in American life. As I said uh, this morning, the sort of last gasp of Hamiltonianism in the 20th century occurs with the uh, presidencies of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. It's Harding that constructs the memorial to uh, Hamilton on the grounds of the Treasury Department. Coolidge extols Hamiltonian virtues 
But when the great crash comes in the late 20s, uh, these are people you don't want to be associated with. And I have this, this line in the book where I say that you know, when the great crash came, Alexander Hamilton might as well have been chairman of the Republican National Committee. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the chairman at the time was, or at least in the 1930s, was a guy by the name of John Hamilton. I yet, yet to have been able to prove was a descendant, but if I had to guess, probably was. Uh, so he really plummets during the New Deal era. And as both Merrill Peterson and I discuss, uh, FDR undertakes a concerted campaign to elevate the status of Thomas Jefferson. Extremely effective effort. And it's an iron law in American life that as one of these guys rises, the other one has to fall. Maybe it doesn't have to be that way, but it seems to be the way it's been. And as Jefferson begins to rise in stature, Hamilton just plummets. It gets so bad that during the Second World <coughs> War, one of Hamilton's defenders in Fortune magazine writes an editorial saying, well, if Hamilton were alive today, he'd probably be fighting the Nazis because it's probably resistant to Hitler. But that's how bad it was. It was this sense that perhaps he might have even had certain fascist inclinations. Uh, it was extraordinary. But FDR builds the, uh, the beautiful Tidal Basin Memorial to, to Jefferson, and that kind of puts Thomas Jefferson uh, in the American pantheon. Uh, he's now up there on par with uh, Abraham Lincoln and with, with George Washington. And there's some feudal <coughs> Republican-sponsored efforts in the Senate to try to build something equivalent for Alexander Hamilton, but uh, those proposals get nowhere, and to this day they have got absolutely nowhere. Um, in the wake of the Second World War, entering the Cold War, Hamilton, the bicentennial of Hamilton's birth, and depending on either, it was either 1955 or 1957, is uh, hardly even noticed. The feds issue a postage stamp. Um, that's about it. There were some isolated commemorations in New York and in St. Croix and elsewhere. But the comparison of Hamilton, the bicentennial of Hamilton's birth with Jefferson's in 1943 is very striking. I and mean, there were all sorts of celebrations around the country, including the opening of the Jefferson Memorial. Uh, there was a very popular play called The Patriots, uh, which portrays Jefferson as the champion of the common man, and Hamilton as this evil monarchist who's also in, in league with the wealthy. Um, this, this was the atmosphere. This was the tenor of the times. You may note that if you read that chapter on the New Deal, <coughs> I spent a decent amount of time talking about a guy by the name of Claude Bowers who wrote a book called Jefferson and Hamilton, The Struggle for Democracy in America. And Claude Bowers is kind of a forgotten figure in our time, but in, in mid-20th century America, he was sort of the David McCullough of his day, the writer of very, very popular political biographies, political history. And Bowers... Um, if you've read any of his works, it's, it's remarkable just how black and white they were, good versus evil. Um, uh, Jefferson leading the forces of light, Hamilton leading the forces of darkness, and we came this close, this close to losing it. Had Hamilton had his way, we'd have veered off in the direction of an authoritarian regime where uh, the common folk would be uh, 
laboring for the wealthy with little return for their for their efforts. So I wanted I, I know I jumped ahead to the Cold War, but I wanted to make sure that I that I pointed out this uh, this man Bowers and the, and the incredible uh, uh, influence that he had on popular attitudes towards Hamilton. Uh, back to the Cold War during the Vietnam and Watergate era. Uh, Hamilton was portrayed as somebody who advocated the imperial presidency uh, that we ended supposedly ended up with with Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. Uh, he was the guy who made a defense for secrecy, presidential secrecy, for an energetic chief executive. Uh, Jefferson, Jefferson was seen as the man who tended to defer to the wisdom of Congress and to the wisdom of the people. So during the Vietnam and Watergate era, Hamilton doesn't fare all that well in American historiography, to say the least. And most contemporary American Democratic presidents, John Kennedy especially, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, Bill Clinton to some extent, Lyndon Johnson less so, I didn't really refer to the founding fathers at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kennedy revered Jefferson, um, Carter as well. Clinton began his inauguration at Monticello by taking a bus ride from Monticello to uh, his inauguration in Washington, D.C. So very, very much identifying himself with the, with the Jefferson legacy. It appeared that all was lost for Alexander Hamilton's reputation, uh, but interestingly enough, in the late, early to, to uh, excuse me, the mid to late 1990s, things began to turn. And I think the primary reason, as I cite in the book, uh, is the issue of race in the United States. Um, the fact that Jefferson was one of the largest slave owners in Virginia, uh, the fact that he wrote some pretty racist tracts uh, in his notes on the state of Virginia, uh, the fact that Hamilton was a founding father of the New York Manumission Society, uh, uh, you know, all of these factors tended to play into Hamilton's fa favor. The revelations that uh, Jefferson may well have uh, been involved with, with Sally Hemings and to perhaps abusing that relationship between master and slave, all of this sort of chips away at the Jefferson legacy. And again, it does seem to be an iron law that as one falls, the other rises. Uh, interestingly enough, if you go to Monticello today, uh, what if you go in the very first room that you enter into the lobby of Monticello? What what do you see on either side of the door, Monticello? Does anyone recall? Anyone been there recently? There's a bust of Hamilton on one side, and there's a bust of Jefferson on the other. And supposedly this was uh, Jefferson had it this way, and guests would come to his home and they would they would see this bust of Hamilton, his arch rival, and they would say, what what the heck is he doing here? And uh, Jefferson's response was, opposed in death as in life. <laughs> sort of staring at each other across the hallway. And that's really how American history, to some extent, has unfolded, that these two men, long dead, uh, are still, in some ways, sort of dictating the parameters of American political debate. So... I think perhaps that's the best best place to stop and uh, let's engage in a discussion either about Hamilton as, as a living figure or his uh, posthumous reputation along with Thomas Jefferson. Yes, sir. 
We've talked a lot about the influence that Hamilton may have had on the centralization of government and the economy and so forth, and, and that, that's, that's totally believable. Uh, you know, I, I wonder about Jefferson, though, in terms of maybe influencing our thought and maybe like our, our seemingly probably what I would call ribald individualism and, and all that. I mean, we, it's sort of a contra- I mean, we want the, the large, powerful government exerting the power over our lives and giving us lots of welfare and all this. And, and yet, on the other hand, we're individualist <coughs> and yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, is there? Do you see that as true? Oh, absolutely. I see that as true. I mean, yeah. you know, Jefferson's influence. Hamilton may have had greater influence in terms of designing the institution and draft, helping to draft the Constitution. So, it's structural influence. But as far as an almost spiritual influence as to who we are as a people, as a, the character of the American people, Jefferson's contribution is. Uh, Paramount and far greater than probably than Hamilton. So the, the, the spirit of Jefferson, the individualism, uh, the, 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 the skepticism that Americans feel towards government uh, comes from both the anti-federalists but also from, from Jefferson and, and from Madison. Uh, the regard that Americans, uh, the fact that, that states, granted their power has been eroded, but the, state, the states still exist as fairly formidable political entities. That's part of Jefferson's legacy as well. So his, Jefferson's influence is still very much a part of who we are. And arguably, Jefferson's influence overseas is far greater than Hamilton. I mean, it's the Declaration of Independence that people tend to hold up, as they did when the wall fell in 91. Uh, Literally in Prague, they read the Declaration of Independence when the communist government fell in Czechoslovakia. You know, they didn't read the Federalist Papers or <laughs> Hamilton's report on manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> a report on a national bank. This is, this is one reason why Hamilton, I think, is never going to quite eclipse Jefferson. There's just, Jefferson is just a far more romantic character in many ways. He had a diversity of interests, you know, designing agricultural implements, uh, learning how to play the violin, Dance, learning how to dance the minuet, supposedly. Uh, you know, Hamilton didn't do a lot of this stuff. Uh, he had a garden later in his life that supposedly gave him some comfort, but probably for about five minutes, and then he'd be back in writing some new <laughs> treatise on, <laughs> on coinage. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, that's not the kind of character that uh, tends to make for a good biographical subject. So there's something about Jefferson. He appeals to the to the poet in us, I, I use the, I describe Jefferson as the poet of the American Revolution, and I think that's absolutely true. Hamilton is not a poet; he's an engineer. Yes, sir. Uh, when you say that Jefferson, in terms of slavery, yeah, uh, that his, uh, I guess his his reputation has fallen yeah. times with the South Indians thing. Uh, but I wanted to know that I know that Jefferson wrote some uh, racist tracks. But uh, he felt that blacks could never be integrated into the society, that perhaps it would be best for them to return to Africa. Colonization. Right. Right. What was Hamilton's view on integrating the free blacks into the society? 
I believe they all, all of the founders at various times flirted with this idea of colonization, and I think Hamilton Falls, I think Hamilton Falls into that category as well. However, if you th- during the American Revolution, Hamilton proposed that black, that freed blacks be incorporated into the American Revolutionary Army in return for their freedom. It was a fairly radical proposal that he put forward. Uh, ultimately went nowhere out of concern for the sensitivity of the white southern uh, states. Uh, That indicates to me that he believed, and I I believe this, that he believed that that, uh, freed slaves could be incorporated (coughs) into American society. There was no discussion of, of them exporting the freed slaves back to Africa. So... That evidence, coupled with his uh, founding role in the New York Manumission Society, leads me to believe that uh, uh, he, he felt that freed slaves could be incorporated into American society. Jefferson's position is, is very complicated because he zigs and he zags. If you look at the late Jefferson, it's not particularly impressive. As he could feel the secession crisis coming on in the 1820s, as could most many Americans. And his position hardened. The early Jefferson that proposed gradual emancipation uh, it, it, it fades, it fades away, which is, which is unfortunate. Maybe that's the dangers of longevity. You write, you write so much over the span of a long life that you provide ammunition for people on both sides. Uh, but as Joseph Ellis points out in American Sphinx, which I think is a terrific book, actually, whatever you think of Ellis, I think it's a terrific book, um, Jefferson's position on race really hardens over time. And, of course, when he passes away, he only frees uh, you know, Sally Hemings and a couple of her children, who may have been his children. Uh, the rest, uh, because in part because of the financial state of his estate, he doesn't free anybody contrast that with George Washington, the way Washington was determined to free his slaves. I've always thought they're both Virginians, they're both slave-owning Virginians, uh, but Washington's record on on slavery stands in stark contrast to Jefferson. Washington was quoted by his Secretary of State, believe it or not, supposedly they had a discussion about the possibility of secession and a civil war. Washington said he would throw his lot in with the North, which is a remarkable thing coming from a Virginian of his stature. Uh, I don't think Thomas Jefferson would have thrown his lot in with the North. Union did not mean all that much to Jefferson. It was liberty, and liberty including the right of property, and that might mean they'd have to put up with institutions such as slavery. Now, he did talk about putting it on the gradual road to extinction. Again, it's a very complicated position with Jefferson, but in practice, he fell far short of his of the great rhetoric of the Declaration. <coughs> yes? Uh, just as uh, sort of an aside on book sales recently, you know, I've, I've heard several authors sort of try to give a comment or sort of be befuddled. <coughs> what do you think is, is driving the great interest in the founders yeah. in the last decade that these guys are selling literally hundreds yeah. of thousands millions of copies yeah. and all these people Except who hate it don't go at the Kansas Press next time yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, actually, I actually am writing a book for Random House on Hamilton that they're hoping will 
put me over the top. Good. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you know how it goes. Um, all these people who yeah. hated history in high school are just yeah, no, like this stuff. No. I think part of it, although you're, it goes back prior to 9-11, but I think 9-11 is playing some role here. I think the success of John Adams, McCulloch's book of John Adams, which came out, I believe, in Oak 2, I think, is partly attributable to a kind of renewed patriotism that, that took hold after 9-11. <coughs> I think there's a real thirst for uh, figures in, in, in American politics of the past who demonstrated a kind of statesmanship that we can all respect. Um, regardless of all the negative things I said about Jefferson today, the fact is that he was an extremely intelligent, extremely curious, uh, fascinating guy, wrote his own stuff, did not have a team of speech writers, <coughs> did not deal in spin, uh, is capable of completing sentences. All of it. There's a real thirst for that. And these guys, these guys were the real thing. I mean, they engaged in some very important debates. They were extremely well-read. Uh, I mean, extremely well-read. And for, you know, Hamilton especially, I mean, if you gave him a challenge, as Washington often did, you know, give me an opinion on the constitutionality of a national bank, my God, I mean, he could throw in references from ancient history, medieval history, uh, and the economists of his day, I mean, just, and do it in the span of a week. Uh, unbelievable. So these are, these are, we've torn them down at times. <coughs> these are incredibly impressive people. What about the idea that that's only a global concept? I know there's a, an Academy Award right now, possibly, for the documentary on Hitler's final days in the bunker. Mm. I think it's something like Don Fox. I heard about this. Yeah. They said this is the first time that the Germans have actually written uh, a story where Hitler is a human being. Mm. Could it be something global going on right now that, you know, that, again, people around the world are looking at the human side of things? It could be, and that certainly would explain McCulloch's success. I actually did not like that. I, I had a hard time plowing through John Adams. Now, maybe it was my own Hamiltonian inclinations that led me to. But I could not, I mean, endless descriptions of the houses that he lived in and the gardens that he walked through. I just bored the heck out of me, but apparently I'm alone in feeling that way. <laughs> I've been told by some folks that that's actually the part they liked the most, and the relationship with Abigail, mm -hmm. and the letters back and forth, and this incredible marriage, no doubt. Um, but it's, yeah, it's that personal side that McCulloch <coughs> captured in John Adams that I think contributed partly to the success of that book, and you, you may be on to something. Yes, sir? If most of the founders were on the same page, if they disdained for Burr. Yeah. And Hamilton particularly disdained it because he had no character. He, he had what? He, he flip-flopped and had no character. Yeah, yeah. Could he have thought the same of Jefferson and only thought that Jefferson did it with his surrogates to make himself look good? Yeah, he did. He did feel that Jefferson also lacked that sort of thing. Hamilton, one of his favorite words was system. He may have even used the word systematic, although that might be a modern word, but that's what he was talking about. He liked people who had a certain consistency to their thought. And he did believe that Jefferson zigzagged as well. And the other thing, and I should have mentioned this point more forcefully this morning, beyond the zigzagging or the flip-flopping, uh, that was the... Uh, um, 
demagoguery. Jeff, uh, Hamilton believed that Jefferson would flatter, would go out of his way to flatter the public. And, and Jeffersonians would do this. You know, Monroe was particularly adept at this. Telling, you know, talking constantly about the wisdom of the American people and the wisdom of the common man. They wouldn't use the term common man, but that's what they were saying. And Hamilton thought that, that was dangerous, that first you flatter people, and then once you sort of have seduced them like that, you can really abuse them. And Hamilton, whatever else he was, he was not a flatterer. And it cost him politically. And you do see more of that tendency towards flattery, I think, in Jefferson. Yes, sir? I think you just explained to me the difference in the electioneering process that was developing. Hmm. And that's why the Federalists couldn't put up the territories because exactly. of what Exactly. I mean, the, the Jeffersonians could feel your pain. Man, is that effective? I mean, that is really effective. I mean, I'm overstating it. They didn't didn't run commercials that said, we feel your pain. (laughs) But that's that's there. And it's not there in the Federalists. It's just, it was, Hamilton just, Hamilton would try to appeal to your reason, not your emotions. And he believed that Jefferson, or at least Jefferson's lieutenants, had a tendency to try to appeal to your emotions. And boy, was Hamilton fearful of that, that, you, that that tactic can be so abused. And his fear was that if America ever falls into a sort of despotic regime, it will not be the man riding in on the horse dressed in military garb, who you can see coming from a mile away. It will be somebody who flatters us who slowly undermines us from when before you know it, the shackles were all wearing shackles, and all along the way we've been seduced. That was his fear. His reading of history led him to believe that that's how people who undermine civil liberties and civil rights come to power. Uh, yes, sir. Well, given that fear, wouldn't that tend to argue that there needed to be a, a weak executive and lots of protections in the Constitution? Uh... No, because for Hamilton, no, because the the, the other the, the more critical threat for Hamilton was from abroad. In other words, we lived in a dark we lived in a we lived in a world where dark, where bad forces were at work. You know, where, where we lived in a world where there were people like Osama and so forth. You know, Hamilton was the ultimate realist. So the greatest threat the greatest threat was external. Despite what I just said, we did acknowledge there were these internal potential problems. But the greatest threat was external. Therefore, you needed to make sure that you had a commander-in-chief who had the adequate powers to repel a foreign attack. And the worst thing you could do would be to cripple that executive and to prevent him from being able to respond to a foreign attack. Because then what would happen if you restricted the executive too much then there'd be the likelihood that he might throw the whole game plan, the whole constitution out the door and turn to either a guy on a horse or some subtle flatterer who's then going to say, don't worry, we'll take care of this foreign threat. So that the, the best way to both secure liberty at home and to prevent it from uh, uh, threats from abroad was to, to give adequate powers to the federal government, in particular to the president. So there is a certain faith in Hamilton 
that you're going to put people in the executive office who are, if not good, at least they're not a threat to you. I mean, he, he takes it on faith that the best people are going to rise to the top. The best people are going to be drawn to this most prominent political position within our system. Um, and he would also say you have certain checks. You have impeachment, the ultimate, you know, the, the A-bomb of, of checks. Uh, if somebody really steps out of line. Oh, let me actually right in the back here. Yeah, and then you know, in, in Hamilton's view of, Je- of Jefferson, um, of course, well, Hamilton Hamilton's a guy that convinces <coughs> Bayard. He convinces Bayard to go ahead and when it, when it, when yeah. Jefferson gets yeah. not right, right, eventually, right over Burr. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't he also ultimately, you know? Kind of gives a laundry list of why Jefferson is not particularly liked by the Federals, but the last part of that he says that at least with Jefferson, he's a man of principle, and he would come around in time. So he's not—he's not a threat. He's not a danger. Yeah, he—he he does. Um, in comparison to Burr, he's a man of principle. That—that's how I read it. But yeah, he sees—he sees principle in Jefferson, but he. I can I can cite other letters where he sees this kind of zigzagging and this flattering, but certainly in comparison to Burr, Jefferson is a more principled individual and will conduct himself as president despite the rhetoric in a somewhat Hamiltonian fashion. Right. He which he did. Ultimately, do what was thought, what would be best for the country. Correct. He had faith in Jefferson. Correct. And if you see Jefferson as president dealing with the Barbary pirates. He did just that, even though he layers it. He conceals the fact that he's given instructions to his naval commanders to be extremely aggressive, to go after the Barbary pirates. Don't be on the defensive. Don't wait for them to attack first. That's what he tells his naval commanders, but he tells Congress he gave explicit instructions to attack only if attacked. So you, again, you're leaving a paper trail that tries to make sure that perhaps your successors down the road will act in a somewhat restrained fashion and will not completely disregard the war powers that are given to the Congress. Okay. <coughs> it's very hard with Jefferson sometimes to, you know, because there's, there's just these layers you have to peel back. Uh, yes, sir, and then... And the, uh, you mentioned the issue of uh, African-Americans, black Americans. How did the either of the two gentlemen weigh in on the issue of Native Americans? Hmm. I don't recall ever hmm. having read anything about either of them making any strong statements they, one way or the other. They did. Uh, Jefferson especially wrote a decent amount about the status of Native Americans and had and had uh, some hope, as, some hope as condescending as that makes sound, that Native Americans could be incorporated into American society given the right training, the right education. It was, he, had a, he had a somewhat compassionate view towards the status of Native Americans, as did Hamilton and the Federalists. In fact, the Federalists, in general, I think, had a more compassionate view about Native Americans than the Jeffersonians and certainly the Jacksonians, uh, uh, because that's a southern and western party that is dealing with, some, in some cases, hostile tribes on their border, the Creek Indians in Georgia, for instance, and Alabama. Uh, the New Englanders up who, who had settled, settled their Indian problem years ago, uh, in some ways you could argue had the luxury of dealing more sympathetically with, with Native Americans. But 
they, Jefferson especially wrote quite a bit about Native Americans and was optimistic that they could somehow be incorporated into our system. Interestingly, as president, as the U.S. is sort of moving west and bumping into these tribes, new tribes all along the way, and the potential conflict is always there, Jefferson's solution to taking Indian lands involved bribing Indian chiefs to hand the land over peacefully. And he literally uses the word bribery in a number of letters. I talk about this in my covert operations book. It, it's a classic covert operation. The instances where American expansion is bumping up against these hostile tribes. There are people saying, let's just move in, let's just take them on, let's, let's you know, we can kill, we can them, we can defeat them militarily. His solution was, no, 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 let's, we'll send Indian agents in there, we'll try to see if we can get to the chieftains to yield the land peacefully through gifts. And he uses the term bribery. Bribery is cheaper than war. So, this way you don't need a large standing military establishment, right, which he was opposed to. You appear not to be pushing around a native tribe that has some sympathy in certain quarters in Europe, so you don't look like a bully that's just taking the land of the, of the uh, Aboriginal peoples. It was beautiful, and in some cases it worked. It worked. This bribery policy worked like a charm. Hamilton on the Alien Sedition Act. Yeah. Was that uh, yeah. his position on that? Uh, he had. Steve, yes. Just for a second. Yeah. Forgive me. Oh, sure. Sure. On the Indian point, I, I think if, if you have <coughs> read Indian Jefferson's states on the uh, notes on the state of Virginia, there's there are, you know many pages yeah. there on Indians, and it's really quite remarkable stuff that very much worth looking at. Mm -hmm. It considers all kinds of things of their nobility, their courage, uh, the way they treat their women, which he called barbaric and so forth, and right. extraordinary payon to their uh, elegance uh, and rhetoric Absolutely. and so forth. So it's just worth looking at. Yeah, uh, very true, very true. Mm. Not to be, you know, pro Jeffersonian or anything. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Alien Sedition. Uh, Alien Sedition Act. Yeah, I try to forget that as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hamilton had some qualms about it be, being, an, since it was an anti-immigrant tone to the Alien and Sedition Acts, or to the Alien Acts anyways, um, it, it disturbed him a little bit, but it would be disingenuous to say that he was sort of an active opponent of the Alien and Sedition Acts. He... Uh, he, he wrote a number of Federalist leaders and urged them to be prudent about it, to be as moderate in its application as they could be, but he certainly did not object to the idea of prosecuting people who were perceived to be engaged in treasonous writings. Now, and this is often you know, held against him, and perhaps rightly so, but uh, keep in mind that Jefferson was a champion of a free press, but had no problem encouraging state government prosecutions of reporters who were hypercritical of public figures. And he did. He, as president, he encouraged the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, I believe, to prosecute a well-known Federalist newspaper editor. And I uh, have a lot of Jeffersonian friends who conveniently forget that fact because the Federalists are so closely associated with the Alien and Sedition Acts, which is a, you know, a terrible mark both on John Adams and the Federalists as a whole. But keep in mind, this is, this is a new country. This is a brand new country. 
Uh, it's not at all clear that this country is going to survive. This is a new experiment in self-government. And uh, it was a dangerous time. And there really were these fears that both Britain, but particularly France, uh, was attempting to influence internal, were attempting to influence internal American politics. So, you know, it's easy to understand why people start advocating things like the Alien and Sedition Act. If the Republican Party was more or less the outgrowth of the Federalists, why did they call it the GOP? We're going back to the Jeffersonian roots then. Right. Uh, well, well, your Jacksonian Democrats are going to go back to the Jeffersonians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jefferson is Jefferson Jackson Day is the, the founding bash for the Democratic Party these days. And uh, he's got, I guess it's held on Jefferson's birthday, April, April 13th. Um, now, the modern Democratic Party sees itself as, as, as being founded by Thomas Jefferson, even though they, they were in the early days referred to as Jeffersonian Republicans or Democrat Republicans or sometimes just Republicans. The modern Republican Party traces its lineage to Lincoln and to, to the immediate pre-Civil War era, but for a time, the modern Republican Party viewed Hamilton explicitly as their founder. Uh, that kind of went out the window with the New Deal, and Hamilton became so discredited. Oh, no, I still have students asking why. Yeah, it's, it's confusing. And keep in mind, you know, the Federalists die off, and then the Whigs appear, and for a time, they're basically everybody's uh, you know, either either a Democrat, Republican, or, or you know, the, the Whigs sort of absorb the old. It gets extremely complicated, and I have a difficult time explaining it, as you can see, uh, to students. Yes, sir. Where would Hamilton and Jefferson fit <coughs> in today's political scene? Who would receive this? Who would we rally around Jackson? Would, would America, do you think, rally more around Jefferson? It depends if you're talking about blue states or red states, I guess. It's really tough. I mean, most of the people I know who admire Hamilton tend to be Republicans. Uh, but it's it's you know it's odd because I mean Hamilton for his time was an advocate of, of big government he was a believer in judicial review which is not something that a lot of Republicans are particularly comfortable with or at least an activist judiciary they're not comfortable with uh, Jefferson who many Democrats view as their founding father was a strong believer in states rights in limiting the power of the federal government. Um, there's a kind of isolationist streak in Jefferson as well that doesn't necessarily fit with modern-day Democrats who are believers in, in the United Nations and so forth. Uh, so it's, it's so hard to say where those guys would, would fit today. Um, I can, you know, if we want, we could talk about particular presidents and who they, you know, they've all tended to choose one or the other. Like, most thoughtful Americans who thought about these guys do. And more Democrats than not choose Jefferson, and more Republicans still tend to choose Hamilton. Uh, Jimmy Carter, if you think about the way Carter conducted himself in office, sort of getting rid of the trappings of the presidency, <coughs> selling the presidential yacht, the Sequoia, Sequoia um, wearing a sweater in the Oval Office, uh, just sort of downplaying the trappings of the presidency. That is classic Jeffersonian. And Carter was aware of this and even referred to it at times. So he was following in the Jeffersonian model. But Jefferson dispensed with 
formal parties in the White House, these formal levies they were called, where you would come in and you would bow to the president, you know, very, very old-fashioned, almost aristocratic style. Jefferson gets rid of that. Carter gets rid of these uh, formal state dinners. I mean, there were a few of them during the Carter years, but they were rare. Reagan comes in and restores all of these trappings. It's like, you know, the combination of Hollywood and the Hamiltonian imperial presidency. Reagan uh, goes out of his way to wrap himself in the trappings of the office. And Americans go back and forth on this. To some extent, I think we're comfortable with the president and we think we could sort of, you know, the guy next door that you could have a beer with. You often heard that referred to with George W. Bush, he's kind of a likable guy, you know, for some folks. Um, you know, uh, but on the other hand, that can wear thin. Carter, I think, overexposed himself, so to speak. You know, he was too, like, too much like us, in a way. Uh, and when Reagan come, came in, it was sort of a breath of fresh air, the big state dinners and the, the pomp and the circumstance and playing hail to the chief, which Carter dispensed with for a while. You can come into a room and there'd be no Marine band playing hail to the chief. It may seem like a small thing, but once things started going bad for Jimmy Carter, he had no protection around him in a sense. He had no aura. The aura of the presidency was not there. And Hamilton would have told him that from day one. You know, don't do this. You want the people to look up to you. You want them to respect you. And if you're too much like them, if you're, you know, that, that's, that's just not a good thing. And I actually think that Hamilton was on to something. Jefferson could get away with it because Jefferson could compensate for his minimalist approach to the style of the presidency with this incredible intellect and the incredible range of interests that he had. And I guess these little, tiny little dinner parties that he had were fascinating because it'd be a mix of people, scientists, politicians, foreign visitors, artists. Okay, fine, but uh, not, there aren't a lot of Jeffersons out there. That was a long-winded answer. But <laughs> yes, sir. Is that maybe because of the difference between people who go into office as aristocrats versus those who have to have to have the trappings of office to do that. That is, they go in with maybe a glamour or an aura. You know, it's like, you know, some people can wear casual clothes and look really dressed up. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, I, I think of those communist leaders back in the 60s or 70s who would wear suits and they'd look like they'd just been... I take your point. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting. It's, 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 it's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, you're trying to take a president who have followed the Jeffersonian model of a downgraded, downplay. Well, I mean, you need a Jimmy, back to Jimmy Carter. I mean, you think of what he did. It is he wanted to follow his, he modeled his inauguration on Jefferson. So he walked down Pennsylvania Avenue, which is in a post-Watergate, an immediate post-Watergate era, was kind of refreshing. As Richard Nixon never walked anywhere. <laughs> and if he did, you know, students were throwing things at him. <laughs> uh, so it worked for a while. Uh, I'm trying to think of other credits. You know, Harry Truman. Truman sort of modeled himself, and many he really revered Jefferson and Jackson. Um, 
and, and sort of downgraded the trappings of the office. Uh, FDR, who admired Jefferson, as we all know, considerably, though, I think veered off a little bit more in the direction of the imperial presidency and in the trappings of the office and so forth, even though he came from a very aristocratic background. See, that's the point. He wore it naturally. Yeah, no, I see what you said. It's a nice and point. It, you know, the, versus someone who seems to be dressed up in yeah. a very fancy dress. They've got ruffles and flourishes and all of right. that, and you're thinking, eh-eh. Yeah. Whereas someone who, who can can wear all that and seem to be deserving of it or can even do without it. But you say, mm-hmm. you're thinking, well, they're not playing it, but boy, they ought to be. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. I like that. I guess, yeah. Yes, ma'am. It's interesting. Um, for those of you who have been to Colonial Williamsburg in the last 10 years, Bill Parker, who um, you know somewhat, um, portrayed Thomas And he himself, just as Bill, is very approachable. Um, but when you see him walk down the street, as Jefferson, he's in a straw hat. Um, he's, I guess, casually dressed for the 18th century. He's not wearing silk. He's wearing cotton. He's wearing linen. He's very approachable. Yeah. And he tends to portray Jefferson as that man of the people, and people do tend to go up to him as Jefferson, um, you know, particularly after he's, but when he is in a group with um, the gentleman he portrays George with, for example, um, he's more, I don't want to say standoffish, but he's more regal yeah, in sure. the sense of it. Yeah. And, and I get a sense from Jefferson that he he and Hamilton had different approaches to that idea of independence and what they meant. Maybe for Hamilton it was economic independence. For Jefferson it was that physical independence of you don't have to rely on anyone else. Here's right. the man, here's the man. And Barker really, Bill really mm-hmm. picked up on, on that idea in his Right. You know, a lot of Jeffersonians felt that Washington had really overdone it. You know, that Washington, not just these formal parties that Washington would have and the bowing, but the few tours of the United States that Washington took were, do- were really done up for the day. I mean, they were like beautiful carriages drawn by six white horses and all these attendants and these incredible uniforms. And it would make quite an impression when it would go into some tiny little hamlet that had never seen anybody come through in, in years. And, uh, and, and, but for Jefferson, that was, that was just too close to monarchy. You don't want to celebrate any one individual. But Hamilton and Washington believe that it's not, it's not the individual, it's the office that you're celebrating. And the fact that this is the head of state, this is your state that's being celebrated here. That tension has always been there. Uh, Jefferson, as you know, discontinued the idea of going up to Congress to deliver a State of the Union address in person because he believed that was too monarchical. You just submit a written notice and let the Congress take it from there, let the people's representatives take it from there. Woodrow Wilson brings that practice, interestingly enough, brings that Hamiltonian practice back of going to address the Congress in person for the State of the Union message. Uh, Yes, ma'am, and then over here. I don't know the title to the book. I think it's called The Perfect God and Slaves. Oh, right. Henry Weissick or something. Yeah. Yeah. And when I read that, it seemed like George Washington was influenced by his peers, so he could not be his own person. But with Jefferson, there seemed to be a time in his life where he felt like he didn't 
have to impress anyone. Mm. And that's what makes Toronto so much different than George Washington, mm. who was a product of his time. Because even before he became president, he always made sure that he looked good, that he True. had a good carriage, that he married well. True. And that, I think, was more so than the office. He wanted to look good. Great point. No, Washington had, was very concerned with his reputation throughout his life. That's why he was afraid to create his slaves during his lifetime, because he didn't want people to look down on his uh, That's one of the theories, which may well be true. It's probably true. I mean, there were financial, very serious financial concerns as well, serious ones. Uh, but Washington was, was a man very much concerned with his own reputation. So it's, it's an excellent corrective in a way to what I just said. It wasn't just concern about the office. Washington had a real concern about his reputation. Hamilton really did, did believe that it was important to put the president up on a pedestal. And Jefferson would have, would have, would have uh, disagreed with that. Yes. Yeah, to short sell the, I think the uh, military aspects of the career of both Washington and Hamilton versus the non-military yeah. career of Jefferson. In the military, they have a saying that you don't salute the man, you salute the rank. Right, right. Yeah, my seven years at the Air Force Academy uh, improved <laughs> my dressing habits. And <laughs> I, you know, I. I uh, it, in fact, it used to irritate me a lot. Of, the Air Force Academy was composed of about 25% civilian faculty, of which I was part. And, man, you know, some of my peers used to just tick me off. They'd come in with, I mean, they just would not look great. And I don't, I think it, I think it, it may seem superficial, perhaps it is, but in contrast to the military guys who were always in uniform, it just, it just didn't go down well with the cadets. And we already, in some ways, had a struggle to make up for a gap in the fact that we weren't in the military. Uh, I'm getting way far afield here. But I mean, these kinds of things can be important. And these take us way off the path. Yes, ma'am. Uh, where, you have a question here, it says, if Jefferson's rule was lost, then what have we lost? Mm. Um, my question would be directed toward agriculture, um, where today our society, um, the little farmers, suffering or disappearing yeah. and big corporate is taking over. Yeah. I mean, in my view, Hamilton would probably side with agriculture perhaps on that issue, but where would Jefferson fall? Would he side with the big the big guy or the little guy? Well, yeah. I, mean, I I'm not sure Hamilton I'm not convinced that Hamilton would be upset about the decline of the family. I, I don't know. I'm a little bit this sounds like I'm reversing myself to some extent, but I think he was a believer in a sort of efficiency in the marketplace, and as sad as it might be to see the family farm go, it's possible Hamilton would have said that's there's something inevitable about these kinds of changes. But he would decide that corporate, the big corp would be getting it because it would be more on a manufacturing basis. Right, right. Now, where would would Jefferson be in this? Yeah, kind of or even, and I look today, like at the, just the past presidential election, where Bush was really trying to hit both both parties are trying to hit, you know, yeah. like farm belts and stuff. Where would George Bush have felt? Would he been more Hamiltonian or Jefferson? Well, I, 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 boy, I mean, to step back a bit, I think Jefferson probably would be concerned about the, the collapse of the family farm. Um, you know, he viewed farmers as the, the they were the, the, the backbone of America. 
and he would probably point to this as a perfect example of the kind of thing he was worried about that Hamilton unleashed certain forces that allowed for the rise of corporate farming and the, and the extinction of the small family farmer. I, I'm guessing here, but that I wouldn't be surprised if that's how you felt. Um, if once again here you have Eastern money going out and wreaking havoc with the, uh, the sort of small farmer, the innocent good farmer who just can't stand up to the big banks back east. I can almost guarantee you that would be his position on this issue. Um, as far as George W. Bush and contemporary <coughs> politician, I, I just don't feel equipped to, to go there. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, when uh, Jefferson gave his inaugural address and talked about we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, mm. We know a lot about the differences. What kind of similarities would you have? That they have things in common? Could you? I mean, well, before I answer that, there's some dispute over whether yeah, he I said we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. He may have said we are Federalists, we are Republicans. It's <coughs> different. Yeah. Meaning, there's two there's two sets of us instead of we're all together. But uh, that aside, um, what were the similarities? Well, I mean, they all believed that they were fulfilling the, the goals of the American Revolution. It was, it was a question of uh, the means to get to the goals, to achieve the goals. I mean, they were all patriots, despite what the Republicans, the, the Jeffersonians would argue. Uh, Hamilton and Pickering and Rufus King and the others were as patriotic as they were. Their, their patriotism was constantly questioned because they tended to favor a British... British way of doing things now and again. When you embrace the, the Declaration of Independence, it was Jefferson. It was, it was Jefferson's document, but I think you know they would have all said that they accept the idea of self-government, and in general, they accept they and they accept the idea of a kind of equal opportunity for all. Um, so they shared that common dream that America is all about. Again, I can't keep it. I mean, they were, they were not portrayed that way at the time by their opponents. Uh, it, you, you do not hear the Federalists questioning the loyalty, the uh, Americanism of the other side. Now, that may sound like I've got a distorted... I don't think so. I have a distorted view. I mean, that was not an argument that the Federalists put forward. They would occasionally say that the, the Jeffersonians are too taken with things French, you know, and with the French Revolution, which... Unfortunately, Jefferson was. Um, I mean, right to the bitter end, Jefferson believed in the French Revolution when people were getting their heads lopped off on a daily basis. I mean, when it turned into a terror, which is precisely what Hamilton had warned about. That revolutions have a tendency to turn in on themselves and consume their own. The most dangerous point of all, when you're in a revolution and you finally succeeded, that's when you can lose it. And that is exactly what happened in France. Hamilton foresaw that. John Adams foresaw it. Jefferson didn't see it. In fact, Jefferson was cavalier about the terror. He said something to the effect of, uh, if it comes down to one last man and one last woman on the planet, if that's what it takes to destroy the old order, so be it. And that's a pretty, pretty remarkable statement. You know, part of the reason I have some discomfort with Jefferson is he strikes me as a sort of armchair revolutionary. Hamilton had seen death on a wholesale scale during the war, as had George Washington. They had friends who were killed. 
Jefferson did not fight in the American Revolution, never that I'm aware of, engaged in any kind of conflict, and had a sort of, he had that abstract revolutionary's comfort level with the depths of others, if the goal was a good one. And that can be dangerous. And uh, I do think that both Hamilton and Washington were tempered by their military experience, and it definitely influenced Hamilton's attitude towards the French Revolution. Revolutions, revolutions can take a real ugly turn, and we all know enough about history to know that that is God's honest truth. And Jefferson seemed to have been particularly, you know, just not particularly concerned. I mentioned this yesterday to the students, and I probably shouldn't because it's it's, it's borderline cheap shot. But <laughs> when uh, uh, when Timothy McVeigh was arrested uh, after the Oklahoma City bombing, when they pulled his car over and they pulled him out of the car. He had a T-shirt with Jefferson's face in the front, and a quote from Jefferson on the back that said uh, something to the effect of, the tree of liberty needs to be watered with the blood of tyrants. Now, you know, Timothy McVeigh was not a serious student of Jefferson's writings, and I'm not saying that, you know. But there's that, there is that zealous revolutionary streak in Jefferson that disturbed Hamilton, and to be honest, disturbs, disturbs me. I also think, too, it's connected with the, uh, again, the French Enlightenment. Yes. The English yeah. in there. And there's, uh, with my, uh, I teach AP European history, and we often now, the students' noses have become sensitized to whips of Rousseau and the notion of forcing people to be free. Yeah. That is, there's a kind of a populism, and by golly, I know what it is, and you're going to be free if that means that I'm going to regulate you. So people need to be free to be whatever they want, but now we're going to limit what you're going to be. And so you have the right. the, the, the horrific thing of people who claim to be extending liberty who end up becoming some of the worst abusers. Sure, sure. Absolutely true. Yes, sir. I think I heard you mention that Lincoln's use of the Declaration of Independence of Jefferson's word was a tactical political consideration. Does that make him hypocritical? <laughs> I was hoping nobody would pick up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Can he actually uh, hate the man and love what he said? Say it again. Can you hate the man and love what he said? Or yeah, I think you can. Him? I think you can. I think you can love, you can admire the words of the Declaration and then look at the career. And, and I mean, I do. I revere the Declaration. I just have a lot of problems with its author. But I don't think that makes me a hypocrite. I don't think it makes Lincoln a hypocrite. And I, I may be wrong, by the way, about my theory about this, but it is very true that Lincoln stopped mentioning Jefferson. I think I mentioned this in the book. From December 1861 until his death in 1865, he made one reference to Jefferson, and that was in response to a group of people who had come specifically for the reason of uh, presenting him with some proclamation about Jefferson. Would you think Lincoln was more using Jefferson or revering the words? He, he was using Jefferson's words to, uh, I think, point out to his political descendants in the South that they were falling short of what Jefferson stood for, at least the Jefferson of the Declaration of Independence stood for. Um, I, 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 that's my take on it. the course during the summer, we talked about the Declaration, and what we talked about were what the forefathers stated about 
something you can handle as an adult, the gap between these beautiful words that have incredible meaning, have universal meaning, and the actions of this flawed human being who wrote them. And I, I, I actually sort of agonize over this when I teach these things, because I don't want to undermine the words and the importance of those documents. But... Uh, I'll tell you why I come down on the side that Jefferson Kent should be criticized. I mean, there were people who lived in his day who were ahead of him on this issue. And Hamilton is not even perhaps the foremost example. There's an unknown founding father from Rhode Island. I believe his name was Stephen Hopkins. I believe he's a signer of the Declaration. He, this guy was an abolitionist to the core in, in 1776. There were people at that time who took a firm stance against slavery as a complete violation of what this document here that we're all about to sign is about. Now, had Stephen Hopkins had his way, the whole American experiment probably would not have made it. South Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, everybody else would have walked to understand the practical political realities of the time. But... I think it's somewhat fair to judge, and, and, and Washington's probably the better example. Washington, a contemporary of Jefferson, a fellow Virginian, and I think he stand, his record stands far above Jefferson on the whole issue of slavery and race, race in America. So I, I think it is fair to judge people. Not, I'm not trying to apply the standards of 2005. There were people in 1776 who were far ahead of Jefferson on this issue. And so for me, that makes it fair to point out the in inconsistencies and the instances of uh, perhaps some hypocrisy. Yes, sir. Um, are we, are that's, we? that's extraordinary, powerful, powerful stuff. Yeah. You shouldn't be listening to this. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very powerful statement. I, I really, uh, uh, period. <clears throat> The only thing that has to be said on that, and this is the hard part, mm. is, is the illusion. I mean, if you, if you know this, is, you know, uh, if, if, if the abolitionists uh, from Rhode Island were proven to be correct in practice, there would have been no United States, right. therefore no union based on that in principle, and therefore the thing couldn't have been worked out. So the consequences of the apparent statement on principle in 1776 would have been that there would have been no movement towards the possibility sure. of moving in the direction of right action in sure. life. So sure. everything you say is true and really lovely. But that's, that's the hard enough to crack in terms of the practice. Right. Yes, sir. So you're somewhat hesitant to address this with, with younger students, but I guess I take somewhat of an issue with that in saying maybe that's precisely the lesson that we should be teaching these young people uh, in a, 
teaching them lessons about human nature and, and statesmanship and you know, yeah. the union and slavery and you know there, there's sort of a, a, a weird dichotomy here it's either we tear the founders down like good postmodernists that's why I hesitate and, and that's, because that's all they get a lot yeah, of times exactly and that just feeds right into everything <coughs> on the other hand we don't want to build the founders on, on houses of sand because if you know if it's the 19th century view of chopping down the cherry tree and, and never yeah. telling a lie then then that edifice will also crumble very easily when they encounter this other view. Yeah. So I, I think that you know, there's so much talk in all the introductions on books on the founders. <coughs> I want to make these people human. Well, I- if we understand that human nature has fallen and, and that these aren't perfect men and yet they rose above their fallen natures to achieve great things and, and establish lasting institutions <coughs> and lasting eternal principles, uh, I, I think clearly this is the message that we should, should be sending mm-hmm. to our students. That's well put. Again, I do I do hesitate sometimes because, <coughs> although I think things have gotten better, you will get the student who all, all they've ever heard is that these guys were elitist, slave-owning, um, hypocrites who are lining their own pockets. The American Revolution was entirely Charles just about, Char- yeah, sort of Charles Beard magnified. I think if, if they ever saw the poll recently that's been conducted, I think CNN did one and what the Washington Post did and one USA Today, and the top five presidents of American ranking are, yeah. you know, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, <laughs> uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. So, I mean, you look at that list and you have to kind yeah. of question what has been, what have these students come up hearing yeah. that these are where we're ranking our presidents? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know what they're hearing. You know, I, I cite in the book, I mean, poor Hamilton, uh, you ask students about Hamilton, uh, I, there was a poll taken in the 1980s where a large percentage of students thought he was a character in uh, All My Children. You take a broad survey of the American public, Hamilton's place in it is very vague. They know he's on the $10 bill. He might know something about the uh, Burr duel. I mean, I, when I finished this book on Hamilton, I was talking, or when I was using when I decided to write this book on Hamilton, I told her... Uh, God, you'd kill me for this. But uh, she said, well, what, what president was he? And uh, a couple of years ago, I was about to do an interview on C-SPAN. And just before we went on the air, the host turned to me and said, when was he president? I gently corrected him and saved him from incredible embarrassment, for which I wish he was eternally grateful. <laughs> I think this is a very real issue and a continuing challenge and one of the memories I had when I was teaching much younger kids, first graders in text, and because a lot of information was not included in their text, I go through some of these, you know, we go through the, the, the uh, very positive thing that we all know about Washington and all these people and then I come back these are primarily African American kids mm. and I tell them about the downside about them being slave owners and so on and so there is this audible stop 
And so and then I go into this whole discussion of human frailty. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people don't make the best choices kind of thing. And sort of come back and deal with moral issues. Mm -hmm. That one thing they have to do in life is to try to do the things they know that are right. So I mean, I think you can kind of if I can do that with third graders, I think if we give a sense of balance there, that it's okay to be <coughs> Yeah. Yeah. I generally end up doing what I just did. I just, you know, I, I, I do, I agonize over it to some extent, especially where I've taught at places where I get smart kids, the kids who have gone to schools where all they get, all they get, if they get any of this at all, is a kind of, uh, that, that sort of cynical, these people are merely out for power, uh, out to line their own pockets, uh, negative, 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 negative stuff. What would you make of, of the sort of perspective on the founders and you know, like Jefferson who owned slaves, yet writing that all men are created equal with rights and all those things? <coughs> By maybe we're judging them from a modern perspective, no. rather than I mean, here's Jefferson, who you know his relatives owned slaves. He comes from a slaveholding society. That's what he grew up with. That was right. the norm for better, for obviously for the worst, but. Can we really blame them for not being uh, uh, prescient enough to, sure. you know, look that far forward? Again, I try to argue that there were people at the time who were not like that, uh, and that, so to me, that that makes it fair game. Uh, and I try not to. Yes, go ahead. Ma'am. And I think when we teach children that we shouldn't tell them that you know it's okay during this time to have slavery, but today. Because it's 2005, we shouldn't. That we should tell our students that these are the choices that these people made, and that we should look at it from this point of view. Because as a descendant of slaves, and where a majority of my students are, I don't think that I should teach them that it was okay during this time period, especially when there are people who are fighting, saying, no, these are people, they need to be free. And if you think about it, when black people first came to the United States, they were not slaves. They were yeah. servants. Now sons like, well, I need to separate you from the other white people, so let me create a race. So, you know, if that's made up, children need to learn about that. Yeah. I, I do think, as Peter was saying before, that this idea that you at least put, you put institutions and ideas in place that put slavery on the path to extinction. Now, it took a while, and maybe it took longer than it should have, uh, but, you know, uh, the fact was that you created a union and you you had certain founding documents that pointed the way, you know, that, that, that showed an alternative. And that somehow, in the end, it all, it did come together. It may have taken longer than it should have. But these men launched a certain process that ultimately led to slavery, slavery's extinction. But boy, I mean, it, you know, it took 600,000 dead Americans, black and white, finally get to that point, and then it took another hundred years or so for people within the civil rights movement, but also without people in positions of power in the Supreme Court and the executive branch who also broke down the barriers of Jim Crow. So if you can put it in this process, then I think it at least uh, it, it, gives, it gives a more complete fuller picture. I guess now. Um, I, too, was at the Summer Institute on the Founding Fathers and one, a, a couple of things that they mentioned was the fact that in, if you read the notes to the Constitution, 
South Carolina and the southern states said, if you do yeah. this, we're out. We're not going to be a part of this union. Yeah. And in Thomas Jefferson's final letter, he said, we have brought this issue to the forefront. Now it's up to the next generation to fix it. That's right. So I think right. I think they understood the issue. And I, a gentleman that was at the um, conference said, you know, we know that car emissions are killing the ozone, but we don't quit driving cars. And in a hundred years, is there going to be somebody who says they knew they were killing us? Why did they keep doing it? Yeah. Why did they vote for Al Gore? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you'll question that. But <laughs> <laughs> he won anyway, right? <laughs> but you know, it's like we are aware that there are issues. We just economically haven't determined. Yeah, that's it. In some ways, that's a great example. Yeah, and not quite perhaps the same. Well, maybe we'll have the same moral force. You never know. Yeah, and going along with that, I mean, thinking about Jefferson's statements on slavery when he said things like, you know, that you know, the mass of mankind was was not to be born booted and spurred and, and ridden, uh, and things like, you know, I tremble when I think there's a just God mm-hmm. who slaves. I mean, here is a guy. I mean, I like to think of him as truly human because here is a guy that knows something is wrong knows it as, as a moral principle, sees the objective wrongness in this, and yet doesn't over... He doesn't act, and, and he yes. doesn't act on that principle, and that is truly his failing, and yet I'm glad that none of us in this room do that. You know? Uh, none of us you know, know things are wrong, and yet we do them anyway, whether out of our passions or in, you know, self-interest or whatever. Um, and truly, it's a failure of humanity. Uh, and, and yet... Several, as you said, did rise above that and, and acted on that moral principle in, in, a, in a heroic fashion. Whenever it came there, Lincoln's a great example of somebody who sort of rose above his. I mean, he was born in a slave state and, and, uh, and all sorts of southern connections. Yeah, I, you know, with, with Jefferson, my take on him is always that he's. I've always found him so fascinating, anyways, because he embodies us. He's such he's yeah. so many paradigms. Yeah. You know, here's a guy that. That uh, you know, he, he was he was opposed to slavery, but I think even at that, he was even for his time, he was probably you know, he was a racist, even considered his time. And you know, but but he, he, it's no question in my mind he understood the problem with the institution yeah. of slavery. I would urge you to read Ron Chernow's book on Hamilton because I, I would also I would make the case that Hamilton is us, and perhaps even perhaps even more than Jefferson. <laughs> because he really does come out of nowhere. I mean, he re- it, really is a, it really is a kind of rags-to-riches story that I think is so American. And uh, it's just an incredible, incredible life story. Yes, sir. And then, and then I think we need to wrap up at quarter of. Is that what's, what's the... Well, go ahead. Was it... For, for Hamilton, was it, was it an active activist judiciary, or was it an active... No, it was an active judiciary. There is. There is. Yeah. No, he was not a believer in an act. I mean, explicitly states this in the Federalist Papers. Judges, Supreme Court judges, federal judges are supposed to interpret the Constitution. Period. And I mean, he comes very close to saying you don't put your own uh, political agenda, your own theories into into the law. You know, he's a, he's a strict constructionist in that sense, but he did believe in judicial review, without without a doubt, and, and some of his peers did not. Uh, and 
and, and Jefferson was very, very skeptical. I mean, he was, because of the undemocratic nature of the courts, he had a real fear of, of judicial power and uh, considered, you know, if he could have, he would have loved to have undermined John Marshall in the Supreme Court. He would love to have had an occasion to do that. I think briefly thought about it when uh, Marbury versus Madison was handed down, which in some ways established, not on its own, there have been some earlier cases as well, the doctrine of judicial review. I, I think you can make a very powerful case that Hamilton and Marshall's advocacy of judicial review, a fairly energ energetic judicial review, um, is, was a tremendous gift to the American people in terms of the protection of civil liberties and civil rights. And that Jefferson's majoritarianism, if you were in a minority, if you're in a minority, a political minority, a racial minority, a religious minority, that's, cannot, that's not always a pleasant place to be. And quite often it's the courts that, that provide you an outlet. That's what did you say that Hamilton would have been very much in favor of the 14th Amendment and Jefferson not? Oh, good Lord, Jefferson would have, uh, that would have finished it. Well, I mean, he was long dead, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hamilton, uh, Hamilton certainly would have been more comfortable with it. I'm not sure if he would have been entirely comfortable with the 14th Amendment, but sure. I mean, he was a believer in federal supremacy and anything that helps that along is a good thing. Well, maybe would he have supported the 14th Amendment as written, but maybe not necessarily its application by judges? Yeah, religious. that's why I was hesitating. There's something yeah. to get there. Yeah. It's just substantial due process, basically being anything you want. Right, right, right. Which opened the door for an activist judiciary. Yes, sir. Thank and then, you. And then over. Christmas, I received the book Measuring America, which is about the... Uh, sale of the Western lands and how it influenced the country. That, that whole system of the sale of the, the Western lands was Jefferson's idea, his concept, uh, the idea of, of providing lands very cheaply to small farmers. Uh, they started out a section that was too big, they made them smaller yet. Uh, a great Jeffersonian idea. But I'm thinking that, that Hamilton's saying, what a wonderful source of revenue for the federal treasury. So, uh, yeah, probably true. Program yeah. that, that brought yeah. these two uh, concepts together very well. It's nice. It's nice. Richard Brookheiser, who's written a book about Hamilton, uh, which I would also recommend if you're looking for something a heck of a lot smaller than the Saranoff <laughs> book. It's called Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Brookheiser says that part of the reason Hamilton's never been a kind of loved, beloved figure is because it's hard to love your accountant. Hamilton <laughs> <laughs> was our national accountant. <laughs> I hope I didn't offend any of you, but I might be married to an accountant. Uh, but of course, he's more than that. He's far more. Hamilton was far more than that. Yes, ma'am. My question was why did Chernow pick the topic of Hamilton? Uh, what you mentioned earlier, you know, race in the mid 1990s. Was it that or was it that? Why, why did he. He, Chernow writes. Tends to write biography. He wrote a, a well-received biography of John D. Rockefeller. He wrote a biography of uh, what's his name, J.P. Morgan. He writes about these sort of New York financial giants, and he kept coming. You know, the, Morgan especially really admired Hamilton. In fact, Morgan saved Hamilton's Harlem home from destruction in the 1920s uh, by by buying it. Uh, 
so all these New York and Wall Street financiers, Chernow is sort of interested in finance and the economy, the, the Wall Street and, and all of it, American capitalism, and he kept coming back to Hamilton and decided to go back to, in, the, in a way, the founding father of American capitalism. It, it, it is an excellent book. It, it's, it's on the McCulloch mega Manhattan phone book scale, yeah. <laughs> which is unfortunate in a way. There's, I think it's about 40 pages before you even get to Hamilton being born. <laughs> you know, you get a lot of his ancestors and all. You, I think he actually starts with the formation of the island of Nevis in 1262. It, it's very good. It's very good. And I hope he wins the Pulitzer Prize. Because then I'm hoping a movie spins off. <laughs> and then books like this <laughs> Well, perhaps uh, that's a good place to stop. And uh, I want to thank you all. I've enjoyed this immensely. And I wish you all Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.